Hey everyone, we're back with the District 3 Podcast, episode 190. My name is Edivin. Uh Today we're joined by two people. One of them has already been on the podcast before, actually just a few weeks ago, and she's back. I'm back. Joining us today, we have Patricia Rodriguez and Lizeth Guadalupe. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And Lizeth, it's your first time here. Yes. Uh, we've talked a little background information on Patricia a few weeks back, you know, about where she's from and all these all these different things. We haven't gotten the opportunity to talk to you yet. So if you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, where your family comes from. Yeah, absolutely. So my mom immigrated from Mexico in like the late 80s. She um, wound up in California. That's where I was born. And then... When I was about four, we moved to Arkansas, to Rogers, and then to Fayetteville, and we've been here since then. And what part of California? Uh, Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara. Yeah. We just have this ongoing thing where <laughs> probably 85% of our guests go to California first and then end up in Arkansas. So yeah. it's like a, a weird thing. I'm not sure if maybe that's just an overall thing for Arkansas, Latinos in general, where like so many of us come from, go to California first because we think that's like safe. That's, there's a lot of us there, so it's like it feels like Mexico. It feels like little Mexico. And then once we're a little bit more comfortable, we're like there's more jobs over here in Arkansas, more safety, more opportunities. Let's move over there because we have an uncle over here that tells that told us to go over there, right? Yes, my mom followed my, my aunts. Oh, she did? Yeah. Was it one of those things where it was like, oh, there's a lot of poultry factories over here, so many jobs that you should come over here and start? Because that's how it was yeah. for my parents. Yes, for a lot of factory jobs. Right, and I think that – um, the, it's natural for that to happen. Um, but so you moved here when you was, when you were four. So that was what, like the, was it like the, the late nineties? Uh, mid nineties. Mid nineties. Yeah. Oh, so you got here pretty early kind of, Patricia got here super early. She's one of like the OG Latina people here in, in, <laughs> in Northwest Arkansas, <laughs> but you were, you were right there then too, because we moved here in 2002 but by then, there was already a good amount of Latino people here. How was it for you? What was your experience like when you moved here in the mid-'90s? Well, I was just a child. Um, I can tell you from my perspective, it was different because my mom had stayed with me because um, my dad provided for us, and then my parents separated, and that's why we moved, um, one of the reasons why I moved. And then suddenly my mom had to be the, the breadwinner, mm. and so she wasn't home anymore. And so as a child, I didn't really understand that. Um, but now as an adult, I appreciate my mom so much. She's my hero. She mm-hmm. provided for us. She did what she had to do. Um, growing up uh, in Fayetteville, it, you know, being predominantly white, I didn't really have um, a lot of uh, peers who looked like me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it that didn't mean that I felt like I didn't belong. I think it was it was until after I graduated high school that I started to realize, oh, <laughs> this is this is what my life will be like mm. um, as a woman of color. Being in the coming coming to this area in the mid '90s, was ESL a thing yet, and were, was it something where you were put in? Yes, I was put in ESL. Um, Early, very early on in elementary, and then I believe up until junior high is when I still when I stopped um, being pulled out of class to go to ESL. But I was still made to take the um, the English proficiency proficiency test mm-hmm. um, up until I graduated high school. Did you have those kind of experiences? Because I feel like sometimes there was a, there was people in ESL that shouldn't be there, like they were already like 
they were good with their English. They they were doing fairly good in school, but they were there because simply the people didn't know what to do with them. Uh, did did you experience anything like that, or did you see anybody else experience something like that when you were in those ESL programs in Fayetteville? Um, yes, yes and no. So I'll say no. I'll tell you why no. Um, early on, I felt like when I was put in ESL, obviously there are other um, predominantly brown kids in there with me. Mm. And so I felt like, oh, okay, I look like them. They look like me. I feel like I belong here. Mm. So I think if, if anything, ESL also provided that community. Mm. And so early on, that's what it felt like to me. However, when I felt more comfortable and more acclimated to the area and to the schools, um, I didn't feel like I should be put in there anymore. Mm. And I didn't feel like I should have been tested anymore either. And actually, mm. <laughs> in high school, I really like had, had enough. And I told uh, one of the administrators, I'm not going to take your test because I don't need to take your test. Because if you can, you can listen to me, I'm speaking to you right now. I don't need to take your test. Mm. And maybe this was immature. I walked out. <laughs> mm. I walked out of the testing area. Um, and I told them I wasn't going to do it. Mm. About a week after that, uh, that same administrator came to me and she said, I know you don't need to be in there, but your scores, because they're perfect scores, help the program, help the program be funded mm. for other students who need it. And I was like, I don't want to take the test. Like, I, I just don't yeah. want to. Um, I ended up taking it. Um, but it just, it didn't feel right. I felt like, why am I, why am I here? Why do I need to take this test? Why do you need to test my English? So. Because in a way, I mean, doesn't it kind of hold back your, your uh, education progress because you're put in a classroom with folks who actually really do need the help and maybe the learning is a little bit uh, slower. Um, and instead of you having the opportunity to be with everybody else, it's learning at a maybe faster pace. Oh, definitely. Um, I remember in sixth grade being pulled and me missing geography. And I felt so left out when I would come back into the quote unquote regular classroom. Um, and they were learning about geography in Europe and doing all these cool map projects. And I was lost. I mm. didn't know like what we were doing. I didn't get a chance to learn that because I was pulled into ESL when I didn't need to be. Mm. And so then both of you graduated from Fayetteville High School? I graduated from for, uh, the school formerly known as West Campus for the mm. bad kids. <laughs> some of the some of the coolest people are in that school, and right? kindest and most empathetic. Like I went to school with. So one of the oldest people I graduated with, she was twenty one mm -hmm. when we graduated. But kids who knew what it meant to be hungry, kids mm -hmm. knew what it meant to be without, kids that knew what it meant to be hurt, what it meant to not be able to trust your caregivers, and really took. Um, relationships seriously and loyalty seriously. Mm. Um, and so that was a really, for me, like, again, predominantly white um, and kids with hardcore empathy, yeah. hardcore, like, punk empathy. Mm. When I, I went to, in 10th grade, I went to ALE, mm -hmm. Alternative Learning Environment. Mm -hmm. That's what it was called. Now it's called uh, uh, the Archer Learning Center, I believe, yeah. in Springdale. Uh, and I met some of the best people there, some of the most empathetic, like you said, and caring people that I still communicate with today, you know, more than I do with people that I graduated high school with for some reason. Yeah. Because um, I still see them out in community and stuff. 
but that's cool that you both both went to fail. Probably, uh, I don't want to say very different experiences because y'all went there in different like time frames. You went early. It must have been harder for you, uh, Patricia, just because at that time, I mean, you were one of the first. You said you were like one, one in what? One, the only one in my school until fifth grade, mm. and then another boy arrived. Mm. Um, and then there was another family that I learned about later, but they were half Latine and half um, Arabe. Okay. So, but um, we didn't have ESL when I was in school. I was put in speech therapy, and my parents didn't know. My, wow. Like, I told my mom about it um, later, and she was like, what? I had no idea that even happened. Was that what they did before? before I guess. I don't know. I, I just have, re I would just remember being pulled and mm -hmm. having to do like exercises. I don't even know and when ESL was created. I'm sure it was program. created elsewhere. And it's probably like a best practices situation mm -hmm. in, in states like California or Illinois, where there's, there were large immigrant populations and schools responding to a need. Exactly like Lisa said. I was being pulled from my learning and my enrichment when I didn't need to be. And I don't know, like there's like, I think there's so many opportunities to be creative in that circumstance where Lisa could have been a student leader and provided some support mm -hmm. to her brown peers. Yeah. And, and like there was just like, there's a lot of opportunity that's, you're still getting funding maybe for your program and you're still supporting it. And then you are giving all of the kids the 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 enrichment that they deserve yeah. and need for their learning and, and their learning experience in school. And one thing I didn't mention at the beginning of the episode, but people will know when they click on this episode, y'all are both graduates of, of the social work program at the University of Arkansas. Uh, today, I'm guessing these experiences that we just talked about right now had something to do with like motivating y'all to get involved in this field of work, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just a little. <laughs> it's like you want to now use your resources, use your energy and education to help folks that might be, you know, going through similar <clears throat> situations or, or just difficult situations in general. Yep, that's that's the goal. Um, yeah, so social work. What is it? What is, what is the <laughs> definition of social work? Your definition of it, because I know that they might have different definitions of it online. So I can quickly just say what social work is not only. Mm -hmm. It is not only people who work for child protective services and remove children from their homes. Um, those are, sometimes they're social workers, sometimes they're family service workers, sometimes they have a degree in communications, sometimes they are just really passionate about um, keeping children and families safe and providing, you know, a service to the community. Um, but they're not always social workers. Social workers um, have a commitment to lifelong learning, social justice, um, Help me out here, bro. <laughs> <laughs> um, human connection, um, advancing human rights, um, a lot of empathy, understanding. An unconditional positive regard. An unconditional positive regard. So then what, what uh, besides what we mentioned about the experiences that you have gone, both of you have gone through in the Fayetteville School District when y'all were there, what are some other things that you feel have motivated you to get involved in this field? For me, um, social justice. Um, I mentioned earlier that my mother immigrated from Mexico. She is, she is an immigrant. <clears throat> so 
the injustices that our immigrants go through, and not just in Northwest Arkansas, but across the U.S., is just un unbearable to watch. Mm -hmm. And it's so, so wrong. And a lot of people say that the system is broken, but it's not. The system is working the way it's meant to be working, meant to keep our immigrants out, meant to keep, make it more difficult for immigrants to receive resources, benefits. Our immigrants live in fear. Mm -hmm. And as a child, I experienced that fear. And, um, since then, I just had this anger, um, and I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it until I took my first social work class, which was Intro to Social Work, <laughs> and that social justice was one of the social work uh, code of ethics, and I thought, oh my God, like I can actually do this for a living, and it was just mind-opening, and really that's what propelled me into the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because of my experiences in school, like we were talking about, I I never had an adult there to be my advocate. And not just an adult, but an adult that looks like me mm-hmm. to be my advocate. And that's another reason why um, I'm driven into this profession is that I want to be that advocate for children in schools that I needed. Mm. Isn't that uh, very interesting how something as simple as having someone in a specific position, in this case, in social work, someone that looks like you, what it can mean to like inspire the next generation of people that might want to do this work. You know, I, I see it in, like in politics and activism and stuff, but I feel like now we're finally able to see more, you know, Latinas in social work, Lat- Latinos in, in, uh, in law as well, mm-hmm. now more than ever, because 10 years back, there really wasn't a lot of representation, if if any, you know, where I know with like therapists, for example, uh, I always reference like everybody to them, to my one therapist that's Latina, because at that time, whenever I started like in therapy, I probably knew about two or three mm-hmm. in this area, didn't know too many, but I had a close relationship with this one, and I trusted her, and now she has like 30 of my friends as also <laughs> as, as clients, you know? Um, but representation is so important. And <laughs> yeah, representation is so important though. Yeah. Um, with my internship, I was in a primary care clinic and to be able to sit with the patients, um, and provide behavioral health support and them, they're like just certain things that were cultural understandings that they didn't have to do the emotional labor of explaining Mm -hmm. to me really allowed us to go a lot further in, in their in their ability to 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 heal or to take what they needed away without having to what whether it was cultural foods whether it, you know and then me being able to be like oh look I found this food pyramid that's Latin American and it and it's not the you know it's a different kind of food plate it's a different kind of this it's a, you know like let's talk about your sleep hygiene what well, what does that mean for you what do you you know and then being able to talk about what that is and translate it across um, a, an Anglo or Eurocentric understanding of what health and healing is and being able to be the interpreter of those concepts. Especially when there's like a time limit of of how long you can be with like the specialist and you know sometimes it can be expensive for folks that don't have insurance so it's like you have all this all this like all the information that you need to give this therapist or professional worker 
and you're limited on time. And then if they understand already culturally, you don't have to waste some of that time explaining. Exactly. Because I know that, that, you know, when it comes to like therapy, for example, sometimes I have, there's so much I need to tell my therapist, right? But I'm limited on time. So I have to like keep it really simple. But I'm so blessed that she already understands culturally where I'm coming from. So I don't have to explain mm -hmm. myself. Um, one of the things that I kind of wanted to touch on is this degree that, that you both got, uh, it can be used to be a therapist, correct? Yes. yes. That's something that people don't, don't probably connect the two yeah. titles um, yeah, so social work, um, you can do, so um, there is a concept, or not a concept, but a theory, uh, mic micro, meso, macro. Micro, meso, So micro. micro is the individual. We're looking at the person. The meso is like the systems that they're in. That's their family, maybe their school. Their and the macro is. It's like a bigger picture, like what policies are influencing their lives, what like government programs maybe they be involved in, mm -hmm. types like that. Yeah. And so social workers can work in every single part of that ecosystem. Okay. Yeah, social workers can help create policies that will help their clients on that micro level. Mm. That's important to point out because I think generally speaking, when someone thinks of social worker, we think of you going to someone's house and, and like and just seeing what they need, which you probably still do. Mm -hmm. You probably do do that. But it goes beyond that. There's much more, more to do and, and probably takes a lot of work yes. with everything that you have to take on. So one of the things that our program at the university emphasized on was our understanding of the systems the client may be in and how our work isn't just micro or not just like in on the individual, but we also have to look deep into the client's lives. So what other systems are impacting their struggles? Mm. How can we address those other barriers? How can we alleviate, help alleviate those barriers? Um, and I think that's one of the things that the program really uh, emphasizes. emphasized yeah. on. And the historical context of like, why are, why do these barriers exist and why do they exist for this person? Mm. So yeah, you might be just a therapist, you know, and I'm using big air quotes here. Um, but then professionally, we once we're licensed, we have an ethical obligation to like not only understand the, you know, like zoom out and understand those things, but to, you know, potentially refer to appropriate resources and be aware of what's available in our community. And so we're looking at the person, we're hearing what they're going through. We're definitely, you know, honing in on, on the part that's our role. Um, but then coming out and saying, hey, I heard you do this. You know, I heard you talk about this. There's this resource that might be available or, you know. And then if we notice a trend happening in our community, it is also our duty to start looking at how we can advocate at a policy level um, to change laws. Mm. So Lisa yeah. mentioned, you know, your big motivator for doing this work is is immigration and immigrants. Well, we're looking at Florida. We're looking at Kentucky. And for how long have we said no human being is illegal and these two states are making it illegal to mm. be an undocumented person, mm. um, to aid an undocumented person? Yeah. So, um, like, National Association of Social Workers put out... Um, you know, statements against these policies. And so I'm proud to be part of a profession that's actively speaking up and out. Would you say, I know that like when it comes to social workers as a general organization, it's not about being like left-leaning or, or right-leaning, uh, but overall it's it's, it's a association that's just very empathetic just to, to humans in general, right? Yeah, yes. 
Like it's and, it, and a lot of the times it, it will be considered left leaning because you know care about people. We want yeah. people to have access to healthcare and, and uh, yeah. immigration processes and all these yeah. things, right? But um, so I guess for for folks that that lo- love to get involved in their community and stuff, this could be a profession for them to look into where they can help people professionally and feel 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 good about the work that they're doing. Absolutely. I think when I hear young people talk about like they want to help somebody, um, because it's, it's what it, kind of what I did. I thought I could be a teacher, a nurse, or a lawyer. Um, and social workers could be seen in any of the places that a teacher, a nurse, or a lawyer work in. Mm. Yes. Um, and that's why it's kind of the perfect place for me. Oh, absolutely. I feel the same way because I have those thoughts. So well, I can either be a lawyer or um, a social worker or s- some sort of player in the schools um but when I learned more about social work and how diverse the pop the the per- profession is I thought oh, that's the place for me if I can still try to influence specifically immigration policy without having to be a lawyer or still ha- be able to advocate for a client in a legal system without having to be a lawyer yeah. then um that's why I opted for social work and both of you have experience with uh, nonprofits in the area. Lisa, you were you were in, you're interning with Arkansas Immigrant Defense. Yes. And uh, Patricia, you went with the Bell Project. You're yeah, we all know. All over the place. What What are some of the things that you might have taken from those nonprofit experiences that are get, that you feel are going to help you on this career path going forward? Um, well, for me. W- so let me just tell you a little bit about what I was doing at Arkansas Immigrant Defense, or AID. And I largely dealt with our, helped our immigrant families apply for Medicaid, our kids, for their immigrant children. So um, their immigrant child was part of that program called, um, oh gosh, I forget now, SJ. S-A-J. S-A-J. S-I-J. Myra says this term all the time, and she's upset that I don't know. She's screaming right now. Sorry, Myra. S-I-J-S. We're so sorry. S-I-J-S, yes. Got it. Yeah. Good job, you guys. <laughs> so what that is, it it, um, it provides some sort of legal status to our uh, immigrant youth, our underage immigrant, immigrant children. Um, and so that helps them qualify for Arkansas Medicaid or, or our kids, right? Uh, one of the things that I learned really is how much we need to advocate for our immigrants and how much we need to educate the systems on immigration policies, even um, even this particular policy. So we would submit their applications and we would get a denial every time mm-hmm. without fail because the same reason, because the child doesn't have a social security number, the child needs to provide that. We can't process it without it. And so <laughs> it was really frustrating, and I took multiple trips down to the Washington County DHS and explained it to them. I was in constant uh, conversation with the attorneys in Little Rock, like, hey, mm. they're giving me pushback again. I thought we discussed this already and, you know, what have you. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of need for awareness, education mm-hmm. into our systems even here in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. What about you, Patricia? What was the question again? About ex- <laughs> about like all these all these experiences oh, you've had in nonprofits. Um, I think one thing that happens a lot in a lot of different nonprofits, and I think Lisa did a really good example of illustrating what I'm about to say and why it's so important, is we mission creep 
so when nonprofits have a mission, they state their mission, and then they st then they like start to chase funding instead of remembering why they're there. Oof. And so Lisette remembered why she was there, and she was there to help these children get access to health care. Mm and to make sure that they had access, that their physical health was taken care of, that their mental health was taken care of, that their well-being was her focus. That was her mission in that role. And um, when nonprofits really stick to their mission and remember why they are there, when social workers really stick to their mission and remember why they are there, it makes the, and what their role is. Mm. Um, so yeah, so so what I was talking about like it's our duty to connect people to resources. We also have to remember remember what our role is and what our limit is because we're also humans, mm -hmm. and right. and so it's kind of making sure that we bring it all in together. What is my mission and what is my role within that, and then how can I connect people? How can I network people in the most appropriate way? Yeah. Um, how can I best advocate and um, and so that's what I've really, really learned. What is my role? What is my mission? And, and when I stick to who, who, what, when, where, why, and how, um, it, it makes the work that you're doing that much more meaningful and that much more powerful and intentional and impactful. Makes sense. And with, with this program, how, how long was the program at the University of Oregon? Is it one year? It depends. It depends. So for me, it was two years, and that's because I don't have an undergrad in social work. And so okay. I had to do the two-year program, and so the first year is the foundational work, like this is what social work is, this is what it looks like um, when you're in practice, and then the second year for me was the um, advanced year, so where I got to take all everything I learned the foundational year and apply it in practice. And this is somewhat of a loaded question, but what are some of the takeaways that you all took from this program? If you can think of like one or two that just really stuck with you on uh, now that you're, you know, going to start, if you haven't already like looking for jobs or, or applying and stuff, uh, once you're already in that position, what are some of the biggest takeaways you're going to take from what you learn at the university and apply in that position once you get a job? I think, like we were discussing earlier, like that multi-systems perspective, like mm. What else, like, okay, I have this child in therapy with me. What else is impacting them? Like, what are their barriers? Um, just trying to really get to the root of the issues within mm -hmm. maybe the family or maybe they're struggling academically or why mm -hmm. are they struggling academically or maybe they're struggling socially. Um, I think that's something that I will take into practice with me. What would you say? Absolutely. No, I agree. Um, Mine was going to be a little more selfish or self-centered. <laughs> I fell in love with research. Um, I fell in love with uh, research and technology. <laughs> <laughs> and I really love doing like statistical analysis and like figuring out how to <laughs> run tests. Oh, oh my no, gosh, no, I'm a nerd. I love it. Um, well, ultimately, it's going to help people. Yeah, well, and you get to ask a question. And then you gather this data and then you run these tests and you get answers to these questions. Mm. And you're able, I'm able to say, Latina children who have been identified by their parents as needing mental health um, interventions and are not able to access it are almost four times as likely to struggle making and keeping friends. Mm. And I'm able to say that you know, with certainty based on the data that I had and that I analyzed. <laughs> what are, talking about that, what are some other statistics or facts that people, might surprise people 
in regards to like the social work field or like what you just mentioned right now? Mm. Anything else that you can think of right now that, you, that surprised you that people might not know uh, without the knowledge that you all have gotten? Oh, okay, a fact. Yeah. Um, so just because somebody works in the community and calls themselves a social worker does not mean they are actually a social worker. Mm. To call yourself a social worker, you have to have graduated from an accredited program mm -hmm. and be licensed. licensed. And yeah. so it's like me going to law school and never taking the bar. I can't call myself a lawyer. Mm. I remember one of, I, I don't know if Patricia remembers this. Do you remember our little, our little interaction about that a few years back? Maybe. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had just started with the Bell Project and um, Patricia was asking me about like the position and stuff with the Bell Project. And, uh, and I was oh, explaining I to her, I was like, I, don't <laughs> I, was, I was like, yeah, it's kind of like social work. Cause you do this, you do that, you do this. And Patricia was like, it's not like social work. <laughs> She's just like, social workers do this and that. Then I'm like, okay. So Thank you for taking that with grace. I follow like bright red right now. <laughs> I was like, dang you, but. I'm just really defensive <laughs> and protective of the and now profession. You're a, and now you're a social worker. Now you're here. Um, so I want to talk about like the presentation that you all did. I think was it like three or four months ago in, in Little Rock. Three months ago, I believe. Uh, around that time. Um, and what what was the pres presentation that you both focused on? We'll start with you, Patricia. Yeah. Uh, if you want to talk a little bit about the presentation that you did and, and like what what you figured out. Yeah. So um, I mentioned you know the st that statistic I rattled off earlier, and so my presentation it was a poster presentation at the social work conference in Little Rock um, back in April, and it was actually me practicing to present my capstone and my uh, capstone. Um, for the Master Social Work Program or MSW program is part of, of what we have a requirement for graduation. And so it's research that we do um, and we put together. And so it was, and then we have to present it in front of a committee. And so the poster presentation was a really great way to like bring like kind of a summary of my research and practice presenting it to people. And, um, and so I was looking at, my question was um, exploring um, the, the relationship between mental health um, among Latina children ages 6 to 17 and friendship. And so I was able to bring all that information together and present it and then um, expand it in my capstone. So in the capstone, you're, look, you're doing a literature review, you're doing, oh God, the literature review yeah, killed me. And then you're also looking at interventions. So, so I'm looking at this population. What, what, how do I respond now? And so for me, I um, really want to explore play therapy. And play therapy can be um, a lot of different things. And I would really like to focus on movement in play therapy. And um, yeah, just moving around. And, 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 and how, how can we take play therapy or therapy in general as an individual situation and into a group situation to help nurture play and friendship among children who are struggling. And so that was kind of what my capstone focused on. And the MSW program is created to to encourage and facilitate a capstone so this is where i really want to like volley the ball over to lisette because she <laughs> did the cool thing <laughs> and and i i'm just thrilled to have had the opportunity to meet lisette and nurture a relationship with her and, and learn from her big beautiful brain oh my gosh <laughs> how about you lisette um well thank you patricia yeah i think i learned a lot from your big beautiful brain too <laughs> um 
uh, Patricia said it was a cool thing to do. It definitely didn't feel like the cool thing to do while I was doing it. <laughs> so um, the other option was a thesis. And so what um, what a thesis is, is like conducting your own research. And so something that I had always been wanting to do was doing research with our Im- immigrant population. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was very meaningful because of research in our for research with our immigrant population here in Northwest Arkansas. Mm. So what my question, my research questions were, were um, the mental health experiences of DACA recipients and non-DACA recipients. So um, for maybe those who don't know, um, immigrant children who arrive to the U.S. are known as our dreamers. <clears throat> so DACA was the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program Um as an executive order by President Obama back in 2012. So not not all of those dreamers qualified for DACA. And what DACA does basically is give give you, um, it's this permit, right? It gives you uh, a legal right to work. Um, and it helped with helping um, our dreamers go to school and pursue mm-hmm. that higher education. There were more opportunities for, to fund their education, I, th- I should say. Um, so what I was curious about is what were the differences between the DACA recipients who did qualify for DACA and mm. then those who didn't qualify but were also considered dreamers. And then the other uh, question I was curious about is how are current our DACA's current legal challenges? How how is that impacting our DACA recipients? Oh. So <clears throat> what I did was I recruited about eight. Uh, participants from Northwest Arkansas across Rogers, Springdale, and Fayetteville. And uh, I had four non-DACA recipients and four DACA recipients. And basically, I just asked them questions. So it's what we call qualitative research, qualitative interviews. It's just asking, like, semi-structured questions about their mental health experiences. Mm. And so each was, like, an hour-long interview. um, And I learned a lot. You know, I'm a U.S. citizen, so I hold that... Uh, privilege of yeah. having citizenship of the U.S. Yeah. I don't really know the struggles that someone without legal status endures. I've it's seen like literally, it. Literally, we're born here. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Like we literally popped up here. You know, that's, yeah. that's crazy when you really we think don't about it. <laughs> pick it. <laughs> no, no. So I've seen it through. I've seen their experiences, but I don't know. And you know, and you know. I don't know personally that experience. It's I not have your a, lived experience. It's not my lived experience. So, what are some of the things you learned? That well, one of the biggest takes takeaways were um, both DACA recipients and non-DACA recipients ha- struggle with chronic worry, stress, mm-hmm. um, and fear. Fear was the biggest thing. Oh. Both groups struggle with that. And they struggle with that for different reasons. So for the non-recipients, it's because they're, they don't have any legal status, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that was their biggest fear. How am I going to provide? I need multiple jobs. You know, I need to be extra careful while I'm driving. I don't have a license. I can't get caught. Mm-hmm. Um, for DACA recipients, it was more like, well, it's a renewable. So DACA is renewable every two years. So their constant worry and fear was, am I going to get renewed this year? Yeah. Is it going to go through? And even more so now with, with uh, DACA being challenged so much by the courts, what, what will happen if it's taken away? What's mm-hmm. going to happen to the life 
that I've been able to build thanks to DACA. Yeah. Getting, building a career, being able to work in that career, having a house, having a family, thanks to DACA. Mm. If it's taken away, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my life? So they both, both groups experience that chronic stress, fear, and worry, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Was there any overlap on both groups being concerned for their parents? Yes, absolutely. So Patricia mentioned literature review. So all that is is doing our research to be able to write, like, a few pages mm-hmm. on previous research that exists out there. Um, and it what I found was consistent with that literature is that they are worried for their families. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen to my parents? I can't go on a vacation for two or three days and leave my parents here. What, what will happen? What will happen? What if something happens when I'm away? Like Mm -hmm. I need to be with them. Um, and may may I add? So, and I think my, our research really, we unknowingly really complimented each other's work. Um, because a couple of the things that I found were, so like these parents before the children qualified for DACA, before that even happened, um, a, there's a couple of trends um, that I found in my literature review and the research that has been done previously. So two things, um, in some states where research was done and 287G passed, um, pregnant people, the, uh, so when 287G would pass in a community, the number of pregnant people attending prenatal appointments dropped. Mm. Um, children attending well child visits dropped. Um, parents would then keep their children home from school and children were not participating in recreational activities. They were not participating in life-enriching programs. Um, and all of this is to do harm reduction, right? They are reducing their exposure. their exposure and risk to interacting with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to, to kind of bring it all to like a callous place, these are people that live in our community. These are families and children who live in our community. These are children who might even be U.S. citizens. Yeah. And they are not um, being part of that community. They're not networking. Yeah. You're not, they're not getting to know you and your family and your children. Um, and so you're creating a whole isolated mm-hmm. community that is not, um, I just can't even think of the language because it's just like, I, I don't want to live in that world. <laughs> that's, I, I can't even give it language because that's not a world I want to live in. Yeah. I want to live in a world where people feel safe to take their children to after school clubs or to do activities, to go to a prenatal visit. That's one of the arguments that we gave whenever we were showing up to these yearly meetings on 287G. And luckily, you know, 287G was terminated in Washington County, even though there's still some programs in the jail that are that are still working like 287G, which we've got to work on. Um, what we told the, the, the people in these meetings was, were, was um, there is a lack of trust mm-hmm. between our community and law enforcement. They're not going to call police because they're afraid that even if, if like a woman, for example, was being abused by her husband, she's not going to call the police because she's scared she's going to get deported and all these different things. And when we started putting things that way, I feel like I don't want to say it changed people's hearts, but it got them thinking like, yeah, there is a lack of trust mm-hmm. because of this program. And we're seen as the enemies because of the fact that these programs terrorize our communities and keep people in their house. Yeah. You know, so uh, one of the things that I was thinking about in regards to like your research, Lisa, 
um, there's just so much, so many factors, right? Of, of, of the way that these folks that you interviewed could be like, could reply. For example, I feel like there's a lot of, of responsibility and pressure on the older person, the like the older kid in a family that's mm -hmm. undocumented, specifically like the older Latina woman. Mm -hmm. You know, I know there's undocumented people, there's people that are not Latina, there's undocumented people from Africa, from Europe, all these different things. But when it comes to Latino community, hmm. I feel like that's also another factor, you know, like. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, that was the experience for some of our participants was um, for the non-DACA recipients, even for DACA recipients, um, as the oldest, as the eldest, um, they had greater responsibility and they felt that sense of greater responsibility. Um, so... For instance, uh, one of the participants discussed <clears throat> what is going to happen to my family if something happens to me mm. because I'm providing that, that um, financial support. I'm providing that emotional support to my younger siblings. I'm basically the other parent here. Mm -hmm. um, so it was that fear. Um, and likewise, um, for DACA recipients, um, they they could they felt a sense of joy to finally be able to help provide as the oldest sibling to help provide for their family to help provide that um, financial support and in a way that was more rewarding and more beneficial to their to their family so that sense of responsibility for the eldest uh, child was definitely seen in my research that's such important. Like I, is that is your research public? I would like to to, <laughs> to see it. Just like I kind of want to learn like what else you found out. I think it'd be interesting to, especially because I still organize a lot in these communities, and I feel like anytime someone does any kind of research in this field, it helps organizers mm -hmm. in some way or another how to approach people. You know, <laughs> absolutely. Um, it's not public yet. Um, it was just accepted for publication, mm -hmm. so I hope here in the next few months it will be made public. Okay. Yeah. You, you'll have to share a link or something. What um, about you, sure. Patricia? Do, do, do yours are, get put, up, put online? Or? No, they're not, um, but I did keep my poster and its art on my wall in my living room. So whenever, <laughs> whenever we stop by your house, we'll <laughs> Yeah, come out there and do my research. <laughs> and what are, what are some goals that you all have in this field? What do you all want to do? Like, I, like we talked about how there's a, a wide variety of things that you can do with this mm -hmm. Uh with this degree, what do you all want to do with this degree of education? Well, a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, first, I think I want to start working with children and providing that therapy that they need, um, even in their language and helping their, um, their families with family therapy and learning all these different things, like learning from the family first and foremost and helping them uh, maneuver the systems. I feel like that's what I needed as a child and that's what my family needed when I was a student. Um, so I think that's where I want to start. Um, eventually, yeah, I'm a big dreamer. <laughs> I'd love to influence or have the opportunity to work on immigration policy, either, you know, both in Arkansas and uh, federally. Um, that's probably... That's important. Biggest thing that I would, would hope to accomplish. Mm. And you will. <laughs> Putting it out there to the universe right now. Yeah. The more that you put it out to the universe. Speak it, it into existence. Well, and I think you did step one. You did research 
on how immigration policy has impacted the community you live in. You know, thank you for bringing that up. Um, One thing that I did want to discuss is the legal violence framework. And so really what that is, um, that term was coined by two researchers in California and Arizona um, about 20, 20 years ago or so. Uh, really what it is, it's um, a combination of punitive immigration laws, um, the enforcement of those laws by like um, ICE, mm. um, Border Patrol, and the negative stigma of immigrants in the U.S. Like those three things combined create legal violence. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a big part of what we're seeing in Florida, you know, that the, those laws, those mm-hmm. um, Afghan support because of the negative stigma that politicians uh, give immigrants and like, you know, politicizing their lives and being political yo-yos. Mm-hmm. And it's just not right. And that's part of what the legal violence is. And then the other part is those punitive laws, the laws that are going to be put into place next month in Florida, um, making it illegal to even... Uh, give a ride give to a somebody ride who is undocumented. Um, p- uh, penalizing paramedics yeah. for rendering aid, which yeah. is their mm. their ethical their ethical duty. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because, for example, you know, Asa Hutchinson was our governor, and he just announced for president like a month ago. That I think it was like the first or second thing he said in his in his campaign announcement was, was talking about like securing the border, and mm. and, and I get. I get people's concerns of just wanting to be safer, but I mean, when it comes to that, they don't understand that when you say comments like that, it does, you are pretty much just creating fear for people to see like immigrants in a different light, like yeah. oh, that we're some sort of danger because we're coming into this yeah. country yeah. without documentation mm-hmm. and it like we're, like we're dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, like you said, it's could lead to, to violence. Yeah, legal violence. legal violence. So it's not like they're not criminalizing a specific behavior like they do, um, like maybe drunk driving, for example. No. They're criminalizing a whole group of people. They're criminalizing our entire immigrant immigration, immigrant population um, in the U.S. Mm. And so the, like just those three, those three components, those harsh punitive immigration laws, um, the enforcement of the laws, and the negative stigma, that's, that's legal mm. violence. How about you, Patricia? Um, well, in the short term, like Lisa said, I am wanting to work in mental health, um, ideally working with children. And, um, well, we've talked before. I really want, I want to use Selena Storytime as a tool to do that. Um, and so we'll, f- we'll figure that out. And in the long term, I would love to do research and get a PhD and continue to explore um, ways that, you know, while, while we're advocating and changing policy, how can we validate and nurture the mental health and well-being of children and their families? Mm. Um, and using, um, you know, some, and this is where, like, research is going to have to come in and looking at, like, what are our cultural pre-Hispanic, pre-Columbian forms of healing and how do we integrate that into mental health today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's important. Um, so people that are listening, if there's anybody that's hiring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> y'all are both in the same spot where y'all are looking, right? That's I am. I don't know. Are. Lisa, do you have any? I accepted an offer. <laughs> <laughs> hey. um, I accepted an offer working with um, 
with Arisa Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. So I worked. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I worked with them before I went back to school and. Um, Applied and interviewed and all that, Congrats. all that jazz. Thank you so much. And so I'll be working in, in Springdale schools. Perfect. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. I'm I'm like not talking. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, in Springdale, we're very blessed with a lot of the people that we have as like staff and stuff. So when I hear about someone other that's that's great, you know, like you and and that you care about people coming into the school district, it's like yes. We're literally becoming the best, if not already, the best district in the school. <laughs> I mean, in the, in the state, but we're, we're even getting closer with more good people coming in. So that's that's cool. I'm happy for you. I'm thank you, thank you, you so much. Thank you. I want to do, like, one quick shout-out. And this is something Lisa and I talked about very briefly. Like, it was literally in passing. Um, <laughs> but I would love to get together with other Spanish-speaking um, mental health care providers and start creating, like, a shared drive or toolkit for language, like like clinical language, and then mm. like what's the proper term for it, and then what's the term that works? Yeah, um, <laughs> and and kind of start working and collaborating together on how to how to really continue to work on making mental health more accessible for our community. Mm. We've seen a lot of like mental health awareness happening in our community yeah. and talking about what a taboo it is, mm-hmm. and I think it's time to talk about. Um, mental health engagement yeah. mm. and, and, and what does that mean? So, okay, we're aware it's a thing. So what now? What now? And, yeah. and I would really like to move that conversation forward to that place. So, yeah, I think yeah. there's been people that have attempted, like try to do something like that, but there's never really like follow up. And, mm. and that's the problem. Yeah. The problem I think it's the to The awareness is great. The, the like crisis response is great. What's the sustained response? What's, mm. what's the long-term response? Um, let's let's keep moving forward because um, mental health wellness, physical health wellness, all of that is a lifelong journey. We're working on it forever, and so we have to talk about it forever. Yeah. So hopefully we see that in in fruition within the next few months, few years. Hopefully, yeah. we Absolutely. know that you're going to be involved, Patricia. Absolutely. So please keep us updated on what happens with that. <laughs> um, but I appreciate you both being here. You know, uh, congrats once again, Elizabeth, on that job, uh, and uh, happy for you. And uh, Patricia, people hearing out right now, hopefully there's someone out there that can be like, hey. Yeah, you know, I'll be honest. I, I've i just had a couple conversations. I haven't applied anywhere. I'm <laughs> trying to just bartend and have a great time this summer. <laughs> hey, enjoy the summer. For uh, sure. Summer officially begins, I believe, the 21st of June. So it's yeah. it's coming up and looks like it's going to be a good summer. Hopefully the weather's not too too hot to the point people don't you know. can't come out. But in the meantime, Patricia's going to be having fun. But there's I'll job try. offers out there. Reach yes. out. They'll make them even more fun. Holler at Patricia. Thank you both for being here. I really appreciate you all. And hopefully this information can help someone and motivate someone to, to get involved in this field. Uh, for everybody listening, that was episode 190 of the District 3 podcast with Patricia Rodriguez and Lisette Guadalupe. Uh, thank you both for being here. And uh, we'll keep people updated on what y'all are doing in the next few months. And uh, thank you all for listening. Signing off.